This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, please think of joining us. Thank you. This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, think of joining us to help keep free speech alive. This free program is paid for by the listeners of Redwood Community Radio. If you're not already a member, think of joining us to help keep free speech alive. Call Mel at 707-629-3333. Welcome to this month's Ask Your Rev Doctor. My name's Andrew Murray. My name's Sarah Johannesson-Murray. Uh, for those of you who perhaps have never listened to our shows, which run every third Friday of the month from 7 till 8 p.m., we're both licensed medical herbalists who trained in England and graduated there with a degree in herbal medicine. And we run a clinic in Garberville where we consult with clients about a wide range of conditions. We manufacture all our own certified organic herbal extracts, which are either grown on our CCUF certified herb farm or which are sourced from other USA-certified organic suppliers. You're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garberville 91.1 FM, and from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions, either related or unrelated, to this month's mixed topic of elevation and the protective effects of CO2 and its many health benefits. Uh, we are once again very pleased to be joined by Dr. Ray Pete who will be sharing his research and knowledge of this topic. The number here, if you live in the area, is 923-3911. Or if you live outside the area, the toll-free number is 1-800-568-3723. That's 1-800-KMUD-RAD. We can also be reached toll-free on 1-888-WBM-HERB for further questions during normal business hours Monday through Friday. For those listeners who perhaps have never heard you speak, Dr. Pete, would you please give us an outline of your academic work uh, before we start this month's show? Oh, I started out in literature and painting um, because I was um, aware that um, American biology in particular was uh, 
pretty backward at the time I was in university. And it wasn't until I had uh, got a master's degree and taught linguistics and um, tried being a professional painter and such that finally I decided to go back and study physiology because uh, I had been reading that all along. So academically, uh, I started fairly late in science, but um, that was sort of a, an advantage because it kept me from uh, having to conform to the dogmas that uh, rule the, the scientific world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, you've extensively lectured and taught at universities, and you have uh, a few, if not many, uh, specialties. Uh, would you just briefly outline uh, your particular interests? Um, progesterone, thyroid, aging, um, and the last uh, 10 or 20 years, I've been thinking a lot about carbon dioxide and its physiology. Excellent. Okay, well, that's actually what we're going to talk about this month, so that's good news. Okay, I, I know that um, for some time now I've been made aware, uh, like all things and most things, um, we are slowly, for want of a better word, evolving and being, uh, I don't know, being retrained. Our minds, my mind certainly has been retrained, Dr. Pete, since uh, I left university uh, studying herbal medicine. Uh, in much the same way, our physiology and pathology, uh, clinical skills not so much, but cl- uh, pathology and uh, uh, physiology was very much dictated by the texts at the time and uh, uh, quite a lot of that seems to be erroneous. Uh, I know that you've uh, really, um, gosh, opened our eyes to certain things that I thought were just just the way they were, but actually they're very different. I know perhaps during this evening's talk, when we, uh, when I'm going to ask you to outline the uh, benefits, say for example, of elevation, that I know we're going to come across a lot of different cofactors which are all helpful and all have a part uh, to p- to play, if you like, in uh, restoration of health. So uh, perhaps let's start with um, elevation as as we're going to talk about um, the effects of high elevation. What does high elevation do for a person? How does it? How, because I think the thing that strikes me most is that we all know about communities that are famous for having high populations of longevity. Um, and how does how does elevation confer longevity to a human? Um, uh, that's that's the essence of the problem. Is uh, what what is the, the outstanding feature that affects all of the high populations. A hundred years ago, insurance companies already knew that the actuaries were were looking at the mortality figures for different diseases, and they saw that cancer, for example, was much less common in all of the high cities of the world. And uh, as recently as the 1950s, Linus Pauling was sure that uh, those figures must be wrong because he said he knows radiation causes uh, cancer and, and the radiation in Denver is much higher than mm-hmm. in uh, New Orleans, for example. Yeah. But the, the figures show that the, the cancer rate in New Orleans and San Francisco is uh, much higher than in Denver. He said that just must be a mistake. But <laughs> the insurance companies have had the figures for mm. over 100 years. 
and the part of the thing is that the radiation that you get at high altitudes is less harmful because of its uh, uh, lower energy transfer. It's uh, high high energy cosmic rays basically go through you without causing much damage. Mm-hmm. But the altitude um, causes the, the um, Haldane-Bohr effect. Everyone knows about that in physiology that uh, it explains what happens when you breathe and when the uh, oxygenated hemoglobin reaches your uh, tissues down in the capillaries. Mm-hmm. The Haldane-Bohr expect, uh, effect explains the the fact that oxygen, when it uh, sticks to hemoglobin, uh, changes the hemoglobin molecule, causing the uh, carbon dioxide to come loose. And when you have a high concentration of, of carbon dioxide down in your capillaries, the carbon dioxide sticking to the hemoglobin causes the oxygen to come loose and become available to the tissues. <coughs> and uh, strangely, uh, there has been almost no research, uh, just a, maybe a, a couple of dozen papers, applying that Haldane effect to other proteins. But uh, uh, in the case of hemoglobin, the molecule just happens to... Uh, be in the right position to transport uh, uh, oxygen and, and CO2 in the blood, but uh, the few people who have tested other proteins find that uh, that's a general effect. The Haldane-Bohr effect applies to proteins in general. Mm. Uh, when there's a lot of carbon dioxide, it basically changes the uh, pH or the uh, isoelectric point of the protein. Um, making it less accessible to oxygen. And that in itself uh, is a protection against the attack of oxygen against proteins. Okay. But more than that, uh, the, the particular group that carbon dioxide sticks to on a protein, such as hemoglobin, is an amino group. Right. And any amino group in your body, whether it's on your DNA or your enzymes or the so-called uh, hormone receptors, uh, these all contain amino groups, mm-hmm. which uh, when there's enough carbon dioxide, it will stick to those groups. And in the absence of carbon dioxide, uh, other stuff will stick to those, such as uh, glycation, right. uh, various free radical yeah. fragments of, of uh, unsaturated fats, will tend to stick to those and uh, derange the hormones. Insulin, for example, is um, a different hormone in the presence of CO2 or in the absence of CO2. So Mm. everything in your body is different when it's well saturated with CO2. Uh, You you can't suffer the side effects of of, uh, diabetes, for example, if if your proteins are well protected. Right, because I I find it very, as uh, many other instances, I find this yet another example of uh, reorganizing my mind uh, to get to grips with the the fundamentals of it. I think we all think about carbon dioxide as being the bad guy, you see, I think that's the problem. It's a bit like uh, 
the common misconception that sugar is the bad guy or the common uh, misconception of saturated fats are the bad guy. Um, CO2 and carbon dioxide, how, how is that more... Uh, how does that confirm more benefits than oxygen when we all think that oxygen is the life-giving uh, molecule? In the 1940s, someone did a survey of organisms, including a, a great variety of, of uh, bacteria and amoebas and things that all require oxygen to live, but he found that they can't live more than one generation if they aren't exposed to adequate carbon dioxide. Okay. Even the uh, obligate uh, respiring oxygen-dependent organisms need carbon dioxide. So uh, he concluded that really it's more important as a, a life-supporting uh, element than uh, oxygen is because all organisms require it and not all organisms require oxygen. Right. Well, and also, Dr. Pete, you explained to us just a, a few minutes ago how <clears throat> if you increase the amount of carbon dioxide in the bloodstream, that that tends to knock those oxygen molecules off the hemoglobin so that the tissues can pick up the oxygen. Um, yeah, so, it, uh, for example, in the heart, when you increase the amount of uh, carbon dioxide in your blood, you increase the actual amount of oxygen in the heart uh, it uh, it delivers the oxygen to the heart but more important than that is that it delivers it in the optimum way it uh, makes the oxygen uh, go to the right places in the heart because it's having the same effect on the heart proteins that it has on the hemoglobin and it, it retracts the electrons so the oxygen doesn't stick where it shouldn't, it goes, uh, the electrons uh, go directly to the oxygen uh, down the electron transport chain, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the um, electrons are uh, prevented from uh, deviating and getting off and uh, attacking the polyunsaturated fats, which is what causes the, the bad oxidation that people right. take. Uh, that, yeah, that's the free radical damage, isn't it, that yeah. uh, people know about. So free radical damage is where the electrons are free to interact with uh, things that cause harm, whereas uh, the presence of uh, an increased amount of CO2 actually prevents those electrons from becoming uh, wild uh, and reacting with uh, harmful or, or you know, good tissues. Yeah, the, the essential uh, electron uh, co moving cofactor uh, NAD and NADH, mm. uh, which takes electrons from sugar or fat and moves it to the right. uh, respiratory system. Uh, in the presence of carbon dioxide, that is more oxidized, right. meaning that yeah. uh, the oxygen is, is doing its work better in the presence of CO2. So basically, just to try to recap for our listeners here, um, in case you haven't heard it before, CO2 is referring to carbon dioxide. So we breathe in oxygen-rich air, and the hemoglo our hemoglobin in our blood picks up that oxygen from our lungs and carries it to our tissues. And what is happening at higher elevations is that you have an increased amount of carbon dioxide in relation to the amount of um, oxygen 
that's a, well, so the carbon dioxide is at a higher level at higher altitudes than it is at lower altitudes. In, in the body, yeah, the, there's less oxygen pressure uh, pushing the carbon dioxide out of your body, and so your body retains a higher concentration as you go higher in altitude because of the lower oxygen pressure. And uh, you can see that in the, the cornea becomes more compact at higher altitude, and uh, people often notice that their uh, nearsightedness improves by two or three diopters. Wow. <laughs> okay, I read that there was an article uh, that you were, um, I'm pretty sure you published it, um, explaining how, the, how nocturnal cornea edema uh, can um, you know, result in kind of bulging, not that bulging, but you know, swollen, swollen eyes because the cornea has to absorb oxygen from the air and when we're awake where our eyes are open and the diffusion's happening and the oxygen's getting into the cornea but at night time our eyelids are co closed over our corneas and our cornea swells because it's not able to get oxygen. And, and they've done experiments putting goggles over people <laughs> and infusing extra carbon dioxide into the, okay. um, into the goggles, uh -huh. and that makes the oxygen get used more efficiently in the cornea where it's depending on the, uh, yeah. the, the outside for its energy supply. Um, the carbon dioxide helps the oxygen get in and um, tightens up the... the um, energy structure of the cornea. Okay. Well, why are hospitals so concerned, especially in the emergency rooms, you know, they test your oxygen saturation by putting this meter oh. over your fingertips and then they give you intra, um, uh, they give you oxygen to breathe. Well, for one thing, uh, I've tested those things on my finger and everyone uh, feels really good when they have a 99% saturation. <laughs> but I've noticed that uh, when I'm feeling r really the best, I can get mine down to 89%. All right. And uh, I've thought about that a lot and watched the different conditions that cause it. Mm -hmm. And uh, hyperventilating will uh, cause the saturation to go up. And having just cold fingers will make the oxygen go up. If you're not using the oxygen, right. it doesn't have, do you any good to have have your hemoglobin saturated if you're not using it. So, right. so those finger meters uh, aren't really very uh, informative unless you know what what temperature your fingers are at. And then I've I've talked to um, the, the doctors specializing in in giving oxygen to stroke patients and and uh, way back in. Uh, the 1930s, Yandel Henderson uh, became famous for um, uh, providing resuscitation equipment to fire departments, which provided 7% carbon dioxide with the oxygen. Wow. And uh, <laughs> that was based on physiology, and it worked. Okay. And uh, uh, the same for um, altitude sickness. Uh, I have friends now who take a bottle of carbon dioxide with them when they go to bail uh, for high altitude skiing. Okay. When they start getting mountain sickness, they uh, take some carbon dioxide. And traditionally, people have been using acetazolamide uh, for mm -hmm. altitude sickness. That
causes you to retain your own carbon dioxide at a higher level. Okay, so let's um, let's go over the, uh, the the health benefits of increasing your CO2 either artificially or when you live at high altitude. How that actually dampens down the inflammatory because I understand it's the inflammatory uh, reactions that happen inside the body um, that are controlled by an increase in carbon dioxide. So, um, do you want to just cover the uh, how the inflammatory process is uh, quelled? Yeah, if you um, imagine. Uh, if you've ever hyperventilated just for fun, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes it'll make your hands drop into a cramp or make your toes curl up in a cramp. Um, if the um, losing carbon dioxide when you hyperventilate mm-hmm. is the same as uh, living at a very low altitude. There's too mm-hmm. much oxygen and too little carbon dioxide. And the, um, the, the cramping effect is is just the first immediate thing. It also causes a cramping of your blood vessels, shutting down the the diameter of your blood vessels, and it can cause fainting by cutting off the blood supply to your brain. But it also causes the the capillaries to leak, even though they're tending to close down. They also become leaky and let water leak out because the carbon dioxide at the proper uh, concentration holds your platelets, uh, causes the platelets to retain their histamine, serotonin, and other inflammatory uh, substances. When you hyperventilate, your platelets leak these right. and make your blood vessels leak, causing edema. And uh, if you um, have something else causing lactic acid to, to increase other than hyperventilation, um, you get the same effect. The lactic acid displaces the carbon dioxide, makes your platelets and red blood cells a leak, and uh, starts the inflammation cycle. And one of the ways that, that the carbon dioxide is working, one of dozens of different beneficial effects, is that it combines with the ammonia, which is produced by stress and protein metabolism, yeah. And in combining with the ammonia, it uh, stops the um, stimulation of the um, formation of lactic acid. Uh, Ammonia accelerates the um, formation of lactic acid. So carbon dioxide is directly turning off the the production of lactic acid. Now, lactic acid is a thing that uh, we feel when we exercise and our muscles cramp. Yeah, and it triggers the release of, of... a whole series of uh, mediators of inflammation, the uh, also of fibrosis. Okay. And, and so they're now <clears throat> finding that when they're doing abdominal surgery, um, if they blow in a, a fairly concentrated carbon dioxide solution or gas, mm-hmm. uh, they'll suppress the formation of, of um, fibrosis fibrosis and adhesions. Well, because it decreases inflammation. Yeah. Now, how about... Um, sorry, sorry. So the common myth that when your muscles hurt, it means that they're growing bigger and that's better is... is I mean, the common... Not the common myth. The common <laughs> belief is a myth. Well, yeah, the um, anything that injures your muscle, yeah. uh, the, the 
lactic acid is probably long gone, but the damage persists, and the damage involves the loss of, of CO2, yeah. and that causes the uptake of water, swelling, and so on. Mm-hmm. And the, the swelling and, and the injury does cause the muscle to get bigger, but not mm. healthier. So this is an, another misconception again. Athletes. Um, Athletes, you know, we all look at people doing the Olympics and we just imagine them to be the most supreme fit human beings that there are, and yet actually they're in a very stressful state doing what they do. Um, Yeah, there have been uh, studies that found that very well-trained athletes typically go around with an elevated lactic acid in their blood even days after their their last exercise. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've... They've uh, suppressed their carbon dioxide and become uh, sort of habituated to increased uh, lactic acid, which has those long-range harmful effects. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let me just uh, let people know that uh, who perhaps have just tuned in. Uh, you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor on KMUD Garberville 91.1 FM, and from 7.30 until the end of the show at 8 o'clock, you're invited to call in with any questions, either related or unrelated, to this month's mixed topic of elevation, uh, the protective effects of CO2 and its many health benefits. And we're joined uh, once again and very pleased uh, that Dr. Ray Pete is with us, sharing his research and his knowledge of this and many other topics. I wanted to ask you, Dr. Pete, why people who um, go to oxygen clinics and have intravenous oxygen or oxygen therapy, why they feel the health effects that they do, the positive health effects that they do, and how that how that interacts with human physiology. Um, uh, there are different treatments that are called oxygen therapy. They range from uh, simply injecting a solution of hydrogen peroxide or exposing the blood to ozone or to ultraviolet light, but uh, generally the treatments are uh, exciting the white blood cells and causing them to... uh, Some some of the effects of excited white blood cells are uh, beneficial. They, They... uh, become more aggressive when they're slightly injured. Um, but <laughs> they also release substances that uh, trigger uh, the stress hormones, ACTH, mm-hmm. leading to activation of your adrenals. And activated adrenals will uh, combat other inflammations. So um, it, it's a way of turning on your, your anti-inflammatory, anti-stress hormones, but uh, there are better ways to uh, generally uh, suppress your inflammatory responses. For example, things that increase progesterone will decrease Mm -hmm. cortisol, uh, causing in the long run uh, much better consequences. So people might experience um, an increased immune system or um, decreased inflammation. Um, Yeah. Uh, the um, carbon dioxide activates the uh, phagocyte process of various cells in your blood, and, and that's uh, a, a part of normal repair and regeneration. Is uh, The baby, for example, gestating in the uterus is completely free of germs normally, but it still has very active phagocytes, which are 
their activity is, is supported in proportion to the carbon dioxide tension, which is uh, usually high in the uterus. And uh, that activity of the uh, phagocytes is part of the developmental process. Uh, when a tissue is changing from one form to another, the old form has to be uh, digested and removed mm -hmm. to make room for the new form. Mm -hmm. So the phagocytes will eat up the old cells and... Yeah, and, and so uh, the carbon dioxide, high, high concentration of it supports the developmental process of cleaning up the junk. Mm. And if would you, it, sorry, would uh, any of this phagocytosis be involved in uh, destroying cancer cells or other? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's essential, and it's, yeah. it's probably one of the main things lacking. Right. Uh, the cells enter the cancer, but they are unable to, right. uh, to produce the right results because the cancer is producing lactic acid, which right. uh, knocks out the function supported by carbon dioxide. Yeah. Huh. So, and, and scar formation, too. Uh, the developing uh, fetus uh, is practically uh, resistant to uh, forming scars only at a later stage when it's being exposed to environmental fats that the mother <laughs> eats. Uh, will it form a scar? But uh, healing is ordinarily scarless in the early fetus. Yeah. And it's the... Um, the, the things causing loss of carbon dioxide mostly that uh, inhibit the phagocytes which should clean up the mm -hmm. uh, the collagen is excess. It, is it in part due to the uh, decreased fibrosis that increased CO2 would also uh, bring about leading to less scars or is that not yes, the same? Yes, I think that's yeah. a, a big part of it. Uh, mm. it uh, excess oxygen uh, causes uh, uh, malfunction of, of a lot of things, uh, uh, displacing the carbon dioxide uh, changes everything systematically, so right. it, it, it causes many derangements, not just the, the lack of phagocyte activity. Now, now, it reminds me now of a, uh, a, a spring that we have here in California called uh, Vichy, it's uh, just uh, in Ukiah down on Highway 101. I know we've been there several times. We, you know, we always enjoy going there because those mineral-rich spring waters are highly carbonated and you can, you, you get this thing called a reactive hyperemia uh, after you've been in the water about five minutes where you get this flushing. Your skin turns pink and you feel warm, even though the water's probably only about... 96 degrees. No, it's 96. No, yeah, it's 96. Well, okay, and it doesn't actually feel that warm. It, it, when you get in it, first of all, it feels a little cool. Um, but when you're in 86. it, you start warming up because you get this vasodilation going on at your skin surface. Uh, if, if you have a giant plastic bag, like a, a leaf <laughs> bag or something, uh -huh. you can fill it with pure <laughs> carbon dioxide, and it'll be at room temperature or even colder if you yeah. just blew it out of a tank. Uh -huh. And when you step into that, you instantly feel warmth. Yeah, all uh, right. And your skin turns pink. And uh, when you're in a hot spring, even though the water doesn't dissolve a, a very high concentration of CO2, still you absorb it hmm. uh, against a gradient. There right. can be many times higher concentration of CO2 in your right. uh, tissue, but it moves from a lower concentration into your body. Right. Uh, 
as if your your body were pumping it in, but it's really a, a matter of being more soluble in your body. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, uh, just, just for example, do you think uh, you're getting more benefits from CO2 by bathing in Vichy or sitting in a uh, trash bag full of CO2? <laughs> <laughs> it's more fun know. to bathe in a hot spring. I, I, know, I know it might be more fun, but actually, if from, a, from a very standard point of view, do you think you're probably going to get more CO2 doing a CO2 therapy in... Uh, a sealed container than you would be in yeah. In, yeah. Okay. yeah I think so yeah. Okay. Uh, just don't put it above your neck <laughs> it's a lot cheaper <laughs> don't try to breathe it <laughs> yeah. okay good uh, well you're listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor K Media Gabbleville 91.1 FM uh, we're joined by Dr. Ray Pete and uh, the lines are open from now until 8 o'clock for anybody who'd like to ask any questions either related or unrelated to this month's topic uh, of altitude and CO2 and the health benefits of high elevation. So um, unless we get any callers, Dr. P, I will just oh, look out. There is a caller. Oh, someone is calling, but I have a question. How come it is when people um, have uh, weakened lungs, high altitude bothers them? Oh, uh, well, that's really the only... <laughs> only condition that is um, bad for, for a high altitude. Uh, it, when they've done studies, for example, in New Mexico, uh, mortality from heart disease as well as cancer decreases for right. every thousand feet of higher altitude, but asthma is right. the one uh, condition right. which is uh, a, a problem at higher altitude. But in Mexico City, uh, it, it, there, there have been surveys through Mexico in which actual incidence and, and suffering from asthma increases as you go down in altitude. So if you have asthma to start with, you don't want to go to uh, Leadville right away. Okay. But as, as a matter of, of developing the problem, living at a high altitude you're much less likely to mm. develop it than living at sea level okay good all right i think we've got uh, some callers on the line so uh, let's go you're on the air good evening good evening great topic um i have a question and it has to do with mountaineering Is that with you? Sorry. Mountaineering. Um, mountaineering. in the six to maybe caller can you turn your radio off please oh sure getting a little feedback. Is that there, better? So. Uh, let's go. Let's try that, yeah. Okay. Um, nice mountaineering in the six to 8,000 foot range, maybe even up to 11,000 feet, um, normally we would use a technique of a uh, big abdominal exhale when we're feeling um, the effects of the altitude. Um, but what you're saying is you should breathe into a bag instead and breathe in your own CO2. Yeah, on one of the Everest expeditions, uh, I think it was on, on Everest, they were treating uh, people uh, by putting them in a bag, big plastic bag with oxygen, and that's a fairly standard way to treat them, and it works, but they found that it was the carbon dioxide that they were breathing out that was accumulating in the bag which was the really therapeutic agent. Uh-huh. So this, that would be a good technique to maybe to test is to have, you know, a paper sack and a, to exhale into it or a plastic bag and to exhale into it and take maybe uh, 30 seconds of deep breaths into it. I think so. Um, 
people with high blood pressure, I've seen several of them in a, a day or two bring their blood pressure down 30 points just by bag breathing repeatedly. Okay, well, thank you. We'll, we'll try that this winter. And also, Dr. Pete, you've mentioned before that you can breathe. If you tightly seal the bag around your mouth, you can breathe in and out of that bag for a couple minutes if it's a big bag Yeah. before you start to feel uncomfortable. And just that small amount of bag breathing can increase your carbon dioxide, which means a lot of your cells work better and you're getting more oxygen into the cell. Yeah, how the adaptation works is that uh, each time you increase the CO2 to an uncomfortable level, it's suppressing the lactate a little bit mm. and lowering the adrenaline and various other factors, free fatty acids and many things that cause you to, to hyperventilate. And so you're basically curing your tendency to breathe too much by adapting uh, to repeated uh, exposures to extra CO2. Okay. Now, on to uh, this kind of divulge a little bit, but this is why I said at the beginning of the show to people that would be listening, there are many different factors influencing uh, the healthful benefits of CO2. I just wanted to bring out a little bit about um, people with, again, this is another topic that's been opened up, and we've seen it ourselves, that people who may be totally normal on a blood test for a thyroid panel actually uh, show definite low thyroid uh, status when they're tested with other methods that were traditionally used as markers of low thyroid. So for people with low thyroid, th th I understand that their CO2 or their carbon dioxide state is generally lower anyway because they have an increased adrenaline and adrenaline depresses carbon dioxide. So having a better thyroid will increase your uh, likelihood of uh, retaining CO2 and decrease your adrenaline. Um, yeah, and there are many many uh, side uh, paths to that. Uh, for example, the thyroid helps to lower the um, estrogen level, and mm -hmm. estrogen and many of the related factors tend to cause you to hyperventilate, even mm -hmm. to the point of having alkalosis. Um, and uh, diabetes, even though uh, supposedly the diabetic isn't using glucose, Typically, a diabetic has elevated lactic acid, hmm. and uh, carbon dioxide uh, makes a big uh, effect on, on uh, the diabetic lactate. Yeah. Okay, so another, another reason not to aerobically exercise, like running and jogging and cycling and all those things that would increase your respiration, increase your oxygen, decrease your CO2, increase your adrenaline, all of those things are... Uh, pointing out to be more negative than healthful. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the kind of uh, the kind of exercises and the people for people that do exercise a lot and really think they get a lot of benefit for it. And I'm not saying they don't. I mean, psychologically, I know there's a huge uh, a benefit in being active and being fit and enjoying a healthy lifestyle. Uh, the actual exercises that would be more beneficial for a person would be. Um. I think um, mild muscle building activity as well as anything that's fun, uh, enjoyable activity that doesn't cause discomfort. But uh, there have been studies of old people with uh, their muscle uh, mitochondria apparently had uh, 
genetic damage, loss of, of DNA, but by uh, several weeks of concentric exercise, just contracting the muscle against resistance, mm -hmm. they repaired the mitochondrial DNA uh, to um, have restored mitochondrial function. But the eccentric exercise where your muscle is forced to lengthen while resisting, uh, for example, when you're walking downhill, uh, that's the kind of exertion your muscle is having, eccentric uh, stretching. Uh, that damages the mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So okay. this is why you suggest pushing the bicycle up the hill and riding the bicycle down the hill. Yeah. <laughs> or throwing weights or uh, loading firewood. Yeah. <laughs> throwing fire okay. pieces of firewood. Okay. How about the, uh, I didn't know this, that the uh, effects of elevation, say if you go up to a uh, high city for a couple of weeks and you come down, the effects of that, positive effects of that increased altitude with the increased CO2 can actually linger for several months. Yeah. How, how does that work? Uh, the Russians were the ones that really pioneered all of the... Uh, Good old Russians. Uh, huh? Yeah. Uh, after <laughs> uh, Yandel Henderson uh, was forgotten, the Russians took up the, the study and they found that uh, uh, if an animal uh, was kept at high altitude for a few months, when it went back to low altitude, it lived the rest of its life uh, retaining... Uh, about twice as many mitochondria as it <laughs> had at, at lower altitude, meaning it was basically twice as efficient. Wow. And it could produce twice as much energy. Because the yeah. mitochondria, for those people that listen, the mitochondria is the kind of the factory in the body. The, the powerhouse. The powerhouses that uh, utilize fuel and produce energy and do all the different things that... Uh, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's failure of the mitochondrion that causes the degenerative diseases. Right. Uh, right. Otto Warburg... Uh, 80, 90 years ago was, was showing that mitochondria fail in cancer. And Russians, uh, the same groups that were, were showing that high altitude causes increased mitochondria, uh, produced uh, uh, cancers artificially in rats. Mm -hmm. And the ones that were left at low altitude, 100% of them died. Right. And the others that were taken to 17,000 feet, 50% of them spontaneously uh, threw off the cancer. Wow. Wow. I, I just find it incredible. The, more, uh, this, the, longer, the longer I'm alive and the more I find out. I mean, you know, the, the beach and the seaside in Victorian England was the place to go to. It was, you know, it was expensive. All the health benefits were well touted of breathing, you know, the sea air and everything else. It's actually one of the worst things you can do. You need to go to a high elevation if you want to get some positive effects. So how come if the insurance companies, this is another startling fact that makes it pretty obvious for people to see what's going on. The insurance companies are losing money if they make a bad, if they hedge a bet badly. Now, so... The insurance companies are usually pretty smart because they don't want to lose money. Um, so for them to know a hundred years ago that the benefits of uh, altitude were such, how come? How come yet again? You know, we on the streets don't. It doesn't trickle down to us. This is just another glaring example. And of when you go into how the hospital, keep the stuff from us. When you go into hospital, they want to cat scan you. They want to X-ray you. They want to give you drugs. No, they want to put and an oxygen mask. And they want to put an oxygen mask yeah, on exactly you. Exactly, the people who should be <laughs> yeah. getting carbon dioxide yeah. are. Um, uh, I've I've talked to some of the doctors who were who were doing it, and 
they said, but wouldn't that uh, cause acidosis or right. uh, various things that, that just don't apply? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they reason a certain way from the textbooks, right. and uh, they, they don't look at enough of the actual studies like Yandel Henderson's mm-hmm. uh, uh, resuscitation studies. Well, can you tell us, Dr. Pete, about um, those people that live at very, very high altitudes and their lifespans? You were telling me about some lifespans of typical lifespan of 130 to 150 years old. Um, yeah. Um, in the, I think it was about 1950, the first time I heard about it was a, a Peruvian who was uh, brought to tour the United States as an oddity. Uh, newspapers had a picture of him, a little tiny guy. Uh, the church record showed him as being 187 years old. And uh, after a couple of weeks visiting around the, the U.S., he was sent back to Peru and died wow. shortly after wow. that. Oops. And uh, uh, old par in, in London, he was a guy in the country that was famous for being 150-something. Mm-hmm. And uh, the king had him brought to London to... to uh, study, and uh, he died shortly after uh, living the high life in London. <laughs> At sea level. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, my mother and I just went to Michoacan, the mountains of Michoacan in Mexico, and we were staying in Pazcuero, which is a town at 7,200 feet in elevation. And for the short seven days we were there, the health benefits were very noticeable, and I'm looking forward to them lasting for more than one week. So, Dr. Pete, you, you're suggesting that if someone spends a week to a month at a higher elevation, then the, the health benefits will last for how long will they last? Oh, uh, after a month, probably a year and a half, something like that. Um, a friend of mine who was there at that altitude uh, last winter uh, for I guess almost two months, lost 20 pounds while he was there. Wow. Oh yeah, that was the that, other thing. Yeah, their food tell, is so delicious. They're they're wonderful corn tamales and their uchepos and carundas. And I ate probably two to three times more than I normally eat. And I came back weighing the same weight. And my mother did the same because we were so hungry. It sped up our metabolism. We were so much more hungry and we ate so much more food and it was so delicious. And we went out for meals here, or we were invited there. And she came back and she had lost weight. <laughs> uh, the Indian Army noticed that their soldiers, when they were sent to Kashmir or other very high-altitude places, uh, lost weight very quickly. Wow. And so they've done a lot of studies on, on how to keep the soldiers' weight up at <laughs> high altitude. <laughs> wow, well... It's quite incredible that even just down to the way your skin and your hair feels, it, it's very different. You do feel different at a high altitude. And, you know, a lot of people were concerned that we would suffer um, breathing difficulties. We hiked up uh, this old ancient volcano every morning, and that was a two-hour hike, an hour up, an hour back. And we didn't have any, we didn't notice any change in our breathing as far as being at 7,200 feet. So. Um, the uh, conventional uh, physiologists for years have noticed what they call the lactate paradox, uh, which is that uh, you can work full force 
at a high altitude without producing lactic acid. Hmm. And uh, it's, it's not really a paradox. It's that the oxygen is uh, not at a high enough concentration to displace carbon dioxide, so the carbon dioxide is taking care Increases, of, right. of the lactic acid. Okay, so in, in increased carbon dioxide states, oxygen is utilized way more efficiently and way less of it, if any of it, is actually available to react in the free radical formation. Um, yeah, um, it, it works. One, one of the ways is, is that carbamino effect, mm -hmm. um, simply uh, protecting uh, any any amino group from attack by by uh, oxygen. But and these are on proteins. Yeah, but it, yeah. it also simply activates the enzymes that uh, direct the um, electrons to move from glucose or fat down to oxygen. Okay. It, it uh, creates a sort of a greased pathway for the electron movement. And if you um, block the carbon dioxide or oxygen, uh, the um, NAD reflects uh, the um, increased uh, access to electrons, and uh, those electrons tend to diffuse out through the cell, causing attack of, of uh, polyunsaturated fats right. and genetic right. material and so on. Well, at least the, um, most people listening have probably heard of oxidation and this is what and free and the production of free radicals, and this is why you want to um, eat your fresh fruits because they're rich in antioxidants and they protect you. So basically, the carbon dioxide is acting like an antioxidant, a very powerful yeah. antioxidant, preventing any of those electrons from forming free radicals and reacting with things they shouldn't be. Instead, um, yeah, they're the, going uh, during surgery. Hospitals have noticed that their patients often had severe lung damage from free radical oxidation from uh, ventilating them too hard. So now they practice what they call permissive hypercapnia. <laughs> they under-respirate them, let the carbon right. dioxide Good accumulate, uh -huh. and it has an antioxidant uh, protective effect. Uh, in uh, horses, uh, there were studies in which they caused the blood, by, by changing the atmosphere, they uh, raised the blood carbon dioxide concentration three times normal from from 30 to 100 wow. and, and at that level there were no free radicals detectable in their bloodstream where normally there is a certain amount so it's as though uh, we're designed to live uh, yeah. with much more carbon dioxide than is available at this altitude and um, people studying uh, the early embryo uh, before implantation between the zygote and the blastocyst stage, uh, traditionally they were uh, culturing them in an atmosphere uh, with 5% uh, carbon dioxide and uh, maybe 15 or 20% oxygen. And uh, they were having poor results, but someone tried increasing the CO2 and found that at 10 or 15 percent CO2 and 5 percent oxygen, mm -hmm. much more CO2 than oxygen, mm -hmm. that the blastocysts uh, were more vigorous, more of them survived and uh, implanted mm -hmm. better.
So uh, it's even at the uh, crucial uh, stage of early embryo development, uh, carbon dioxide is the crucial factor, mm. much more important than oxygen. Okay. Now, I'm always, uh, I'm always trying to promote people's free access, free access to good information and how, how they can best help themselves. Uh, what's there, uh, any good ways of increasing your CO2, the best ways of doing it? Um, shifting your diet away from the uh, polyunsaturated fats mm -hmm. is, okay. is, I think, the basic So how, thing. Does, that, how does that help? Um, the, um, the polyunsaturated fats uh, interfere with the enzymes that send electrons to oxygen mm -hmm. and uh, shift away from glucose metabolism to fat metabolism. Uh, that you can show that when they um, give intravenous fat to uh, people in hospitals to increase their calories. Within a few minutes, their ability to use glucose is suppressed. The, the fat simply block mm. the, um, the enzymes that uh, produce uh, the, the oxidized glucose. And, and when you burn uh, glucose, you get much more carbon dioxide per unit of oxygen uh, used or uh, uh, fuel used. And uh, so at, at uh, high altitude, a person uses their oxygen more efficiently mm -hmm. and they're more reluctant to um, burn their uh, stored fats. And, and the anything you do to increase the carbon dioxide will uh, tend to protect you against the mobilizing your fats and creating that diabetes-like state. Yeah. So just to um, explain for our listeners, polyunsaturated fats are those fats that are liquid at yeah. room temperature apart from olive oil, which is mainly monounsaturated. And they include the long list of vegetable oils, soy, canola, safflower, cottonseed, sunflower. corn, sunflower, hemp seed, hemp seed, flaxseed, flax fish yeah. oil. Those are all polyunsaturated fatty acids. That yeah, there is a big push now to um, uh, sell fish oils in mm. place of those seed oils that were uh, promoted for 50 years. Okay. And now they're shifting over to fish oils Which because they don't produce some of the toxic effects of the seed oils, but part of the reason they don't do that is that they are so unstable that they break down <laughs> even <Instantly>. before <laughs> they reach your bloodstream. <laughs> a, a very high proportion has become the free radical fragments that inhibit your immune system, and even though in the long range they increase your infections and uh, suppress immunity, in the short range, they seem to be anti-inflammatory just by, by their suppressive effect. But um, some of the uh, people who are promoting those very oils, DHA and EPA, for example, mm -hmm. uh, they've been saying that your baby will be smarter if you put it in their, in their baby food. Oh, yeah. But um, the, <laughs> in the baby food, these things are so unstable, uh, they're about 20 times more broken down into toxic free radicals <laughs> than uh, even when you get them in, wow. in the normal food form. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, some of these people believed that the women who ate fish oil and and the other uh, highly unsaturated fats would have more intelligent fetuses, and so they uh, presented sounds to the uh, the gestating baby to um, uh, see how quickly they could habituate and and uh, respond uh, as if they recognized the sound, and they were predicting that the women with the highly unsaturated babies <laughs> would uh, have the smartest fetuses. And they found just the opposite, mm-hmm. that the women showing evidence of a deficiency of fatty acids had the babies that behaved most adaptively. So they had a deficiency of these toxic fatty acids. and Yeah, and, and, mm-hmm. and when the babies. baby was born, they found they, they measured their head circumference, length, and weight, and they were growth retarded as well as behavior <laughs> retarded. Oh, goodness. And the the that, babies that were born to women who ate a lot of fish oils. Yeah, and 30, 40 years ago, animal studies showed the same effect. They, mm-hmm. they uh, fed one group of rats cocoa, butter, or uh, I think it was safflower oil. Uh, and the ones that got safflower oil were stupid and had small brains, the babies. And, and the uh, the others were uh, better learners with bigger brains that had the cocoa butter. Well, there you go. So there's lots of research out there showing all of these things we've talked to talked about tonight. And thankfully to Dr. Pete, he digs up a lot of this research and brings it to our ears. So thank you very much, Dr. Pete, for sharing all of this with us. We really appreciate your expertise. Okay. I- I think our I think our engineer has a question for you, Doctor Peter. I just I have a couple. Of, just one. One is prior to 1920, I heard that um, when corn oil got it, 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 out in the country, that there was more heart attacks. I don't know if that's true or not. And the other is b- butter and coconut oil. Are those two the ones I should be eating? Because that's the ones I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you eat lots of butter or cream, it can make you fat, but uh, it is protective against the oxidative. Uh, degenerative diseases, but the coconut oil uh, tends to stimulate your use of oxygen so fast that uh, it protects against uh, even obesity. And milk and milk fat, uh, the milk contains other things that stimulate your um, safe use of oxygen. And so if you're going to use the cream, it's better with milk rather than just in the butter form. Okay, good. And also, um, I think your question about the heart attacks was that bef- prior to 1920s, there's studies that showed that heart attacks were much, much le- less pre- prevalent. And so it was once that once people started eating these polyunsaturated fats and the corn oil and the big Mazzola corn oil push, that's when the heart attack uh, incidence was on the increase. Yeah, and the, um, the, the age pigment is formed from the polyunsaturated fats of um, corn oil and soy oil and such, and this has been identified uh, repeatedly in the atherosclerotic plaques that are involved in heart disease. So there are direct connections between the polyunsaturated fats and heart disease, as well as cancer. So there's lots of this research out there, and you can visit Dr. Ray Pete's website. It's www.raypeat.com, R-A-Y. P-E-A-T. Dot com. Dot and com. there's lots of articles there. 
Um, plenty of articles about subjects that we've talked about this evening and a lot of other uh, articles uh, that we haven't covered, but well worth checking out. Uh, fully referenced scientific articles, folks, uh, not not witch doctoring or hearsay, but uh, validated scientific articles. So not that the witch doctors didn't have some things not right, too. Not that the too. witch doctors <laughs> didn't have some stuff, but we're talking, talking to people who want facts. Okay, so go to raypeak.com and get some facts. Uh, thank you for listening to Ask Your Herb Doctor until uh, next month, August. The 20th. August the 20th. The uh, third Friday of August, third Friday of every month. Keep enjoying the warm weather, and uh, we look forward to being with you then. Thank you, Dr. Pete. Thank okay, you, Dr. Pete. And thank you, listeners. Yeah, good night. Support for KMD comes in part from Pacific Justice Center, where attorney Mel Pearlson offers 30 years of experience in marijuana defense on the North Coast. To schedule an appointment for an initial consultation and case analysis, you can call Bill at 707-629-3333. I've got uh, 8 o'clock. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive. Please remember that this program is supported by the listener members of Redwood Community Radio. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a member of KMUD or renewing if you've already joined. A regular yearly membership is $50, but we accept any amount. Help us keep free speech alive.